Hello, this is Mark Winwood bringing you the Elegant Mind Tibetan Life Science for Modern Western Living here on Valley 104.9 Local FM Radio, serving the communities of Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge in Washington State's Lower Snoqualmie Valley. Thank you so much for tuning in. So it's been a while since I have done a fresh broadcast. If you listen regularly, you'll know that we've been repeating previously recorded broadcasts as I have been out of the country. I was in the the Himalayas in Kathmandu, Nepal, for a little bit more than three weeks. I was there on retreat. I was there with a group of pilgrims, mostly from the New York City, from the northeast area of the country, and and we were uh, we were ensconced very safely and beautifully ensconced at a monastery called Kopan, Kopan Monastery, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery that sits up on a hill to the north of Kathmandu, which actually between the city and the high Himalayas to the north. Kopan is a wonderful place. I had been there before. I had been there 12 years ago for a couple of months studying, learning on retreat. And uh, Kopan is currently home to, I believe, somewhere around 500 Tibetan Buddhist monks. Some are as young as six or seven years old. Many are in their teens and their 20s and their 30s. These are men who have decided to dedicate their lives to studying Tibetan Buddhism and thereby being able to best benefit all sentient beings who ever crossed their path at any point in time with humility and wisdom and compassion and kindness, generosity, patience, and love, basically, love. So Kopan is, uh, it was actually purchased by a couple of Tibetan lamas, Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa Rinpoche, back in the very late 60s. I believe it was 1969. It had been the home of the royal astrologer of Nepal, the man who served the royal family of Nepal in terms of predictions and prophecies and astrological information. It has been a monastery, a place of learning, and is really quite an extraordinary place, both in appearance and an atmosphere, uh, and the history of all the hundreds, thousands of people who have come to Copan over the decades to clarify clarify their minds to learn a little bit of these of these Tibetan Buddhist sciences and practices meditations ways of being to bathe in that in that fertile atmosphere and then take whatever it is that they've come to understand and embrace and then take that back with them down the hill to Kathmandu and to points beyond their homes, their working place, their families, their friends, their relationships, etc. Kopan Monastery is a real source, a real source of, of, uh, of beauty, of uh, a mind beauty, of personal, personal, social beauty. Kopan Monastery. So very, very fortunate, very fortunate to be there once again. And uh, at my age, I really didn't think I was ever going to go back. Nepal is a tough place. It's it's very poor. And, you know, there were earthquakes, major earthquakes that took place there three years ago that have altered the the city. And uh, it's a poor country, and it has not yet recovered, fully recovered from those earthquakes. There's lots of buildings down and pipelines through the streets that are being replaced, and there's lots and lots of dust. And, and it's a beautiful, there's a beauty beneath the dust 
where within the dust or underneath the dust there is a there's an exquisite beauty to the Nepali people and Nepal and Kathmandu. Uh, but it's tough. It's a tough place for an old guy, an old guy like me, uh, to breathe that air and walk up and down those hills and. Uh, but anyway, I'm back. I made it, survived, and come back with lots of stories to tell and teachings to share. So one of the things that we discussed, the group discussed, and it would pop up periodically, and actually it would pop up more and more as our time there progressed, is the, uh, okay, what do I do? What do I do with what I'm learning, these, these, what I'm experiencing in my meditations? And what I'm coming to realize is the internal dust of Western life and all the challenges it, it presents is that begins to settle in my mind and there's a clarity and an understanding and a, and a kind of vision that begins to emerge. What do I do? What how do I, how do, how do I bring that home? How do I, how do I not get swallowed up by all the, the drama of my life once I'm out of Copan? And it, this came up a lot. This came up a lot with folks. And so what I've decided to uh, do on this program today is share with you a very practical very practical teaching that is known as the 16 Guidelines for Life. The 16 Guidelines for Life, which is very, very practical and simple, a very practical and simple and robust framework for reflecting on the ways that we think and the ways we speak and act and the ways that we find meaning in our lives and then create the causes of true happiness and true fulfillment of our potentials. It's, uh, it's versatile, these 16 guidelines, and it's kind of an evolving educational toolkit. They promote mindfulness and wisdom in, in our lives, in our workplace, in our schools, in our healthcare, in our prisons, and in our home. It's a curriculum that was first put forth in, I believe, 2006, and it was kind of launched at Copan Monastery when I was there. So I have a connection to this teaching. I attended some of the meetings and discussing, okay, how are we going to, what are we going to do with these? How are we going to organize? How are we going to present? Where are we going to present first? It was a uh, little group that was formed at the time called the Foundation for Developing Compassion and Wisdom International, set up as a nonprofit organization that put forth the curriculum of the 16 guidelines for life and formalized them in writings and handouts and literature and so on. I'm going to present those to you today as best I can in the in the time that we have. Before I begin, though, I just want to once again reintroduce the music that you heard at the beginning of this program, and you'll hear at the end as we go off the air, and then with a little musical number somewhere in the middle. This is an hour-long program, so the music happens somewhere around 30 minutes. And all of this music that you hear on The Elegant Mind is written, composed, and, and donated, if you will, shared by Bobby Vega. Bobby is, is an old friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine. He lives down in the Bay Area. I grew up in San Francisco, lives in the Bay Area, north of San Francisco now, Sonoma County. And Bobby is a uh, lifelong master musician. He's a bass player. He's a composer. He's a teacher. Has played in and in and with many, many Bay Area bands, 
Jefferson Airplane people, Grateful Dead people, Santana, Carlos and Santana people as well. Played with Tower of Power. He was the bass player in a band called Zero. Very, very popular band, rock band called Zero that played from the mid-80s all the way up to a little past the year 2000. So they had about a 15-year run, some fantastic music. And Bobby offered, when he heard about my doing programs, offered his music whatever I want, whatever I want to use. He's happy for me to do so and embellish all my words with some beauty, with some music. So thank you to Bobby, Bobby Vega, V-E-G-A, Bobby Vega. He's on the internet. You can look him up if you want. BobbyVega.com, I think is his website. You can find him. And today we're going to hear a song, an instrumental song he composed and played with a, a friend named Chris Rossback, I believe around 2005. And the song is called apocalyptic <laughs> apocalyptic music here on a elegant mind tibetan mind science tibetan buddhist uh broadcast so i guess it fits i guess it all fits together so again thank you it's mark winwood elegant mind valley radio 104.9 fm serving the lower snoqualmie valley that's the valley that has the snoqualmie river flowing through it serving the communities of redmond ridge duval and carnation and all points in between we're also streamed on the internet at www.valley1049.org so you can listen to the program on your computer, your tablet, your smartphone, or as you're driving in your car or on the kitchen radio or your transistor radio late at night if you uh, desire to do so. So thank you so much for tuning in. Okay, so as for the 16 guidelines for life, what I'm going to do is present them to you kind of in list form. There's four categories of the guidelines for life, how we think, how we act, how we relate to others, and how we find meaning in our lives. So I'm just going to list them, all 16, four, 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 and four, four groups of four, four aspects. And then what we'll do is we'll go into each one of those briefly. I'll give you an explanation, an overview explanation of how each of the 16 aspects contributes to, as a guideline, serves as a guideline to living a as much as we possibly can at any particular moment, a happy, peaceful, and beneficial life. So this all comes about, certainly the how we think aspect comes about from the idea, from the notion, pretty much agreed upon by everyone, that everything that we say and do arises from our thoughts, from our thoughts. How we think lies at the root of every word we speak, lies at the root of every action we perform, where we live, who we choose to be our friends, what job we do, how we spend our time. Our lives are shaped by our thoughts from earliest childhood right up until the day we die. And for this reason, recognizing the power of the mind is perhaps the most important, the most fundamental theme that underlies the 16 guidelines for life. It's a, you know, it's a natural instinct for us to experience the world as something, quote unquote, out there. This focus on external circumstances makes us vulnerable to their ebb and flow, which can never be completely consistently in our favor. However, if we probe, and I ask you to consider, if we probe more deeply, it becomes clear that each of our experiences of the world is significantly affected by what's going on inside by our state of mind. So one day, 
you know, you see a man and a woman embracing in public and it can make you feel relaxed and happy. On another day, you see the same embrace and you might feel envious and miserable. You know, we're, so we're influenced certainly by our outlook, by our mood, but we're also influenced by our cultural conditioning. In one country, an embrace between a man and a woman, whether married or not, is regarded as a natural show of affection. In another country, it may be considered immoral and unacceptable. Our emotional reactions are driven by a complex mixture of experiences, attitudes, and beliefs, each of us. If you pause to consider, perhaps you can recognize that behind every emotion lies a thought. We're often not conscious of this because events happen so quickly in our lives and outbursts of anger might come from the thought, this person frightens me, I'm going to get hurt, or I can't get what I want from them. When we're depressed, thoughts can pile up relentlessly. I'm not good enough, I've made such a mess of things, no one likes me, this will never come to an end, why am I doing this, why am I wasting my time, etc. And even if the thoughts are exaggerated, even if the thoughts have no semblance to reality, they're completely emotional, our minds have the power to create a downward spiral of misery and dissatisfaction. So in that lies an opportunity. In that lies an opportunity. Just as an athlete trains his or her body, we can train and transform our minds. And in doing so, we can shift habitual patterns and we can begin to explore new ways of perceiving, new ways of living, cultivating. And here's the four aspects of the how we think guidelines for life, cultivating humility, patience, contentment and delight offers us four ways to achieve this. So again, how we think, humility, patience, contentment, and delight. Then we have how we act, how we act. Human lives, our lives, are composed of billions of actions, actions of body, actions of speech, actions of mind, which take place every minute of the day from the moment of birth until the second we take our last breath. It is in the how we choose to act, how, not what we do, how we choose to act, therefore, that defines and colors the very quality of our life and of our experiences. So before taking a major action, such as choosing a job, where to live, entering a new relationship, most of us will reflect quite carefully on whether it's likely to bring us the happiness, whatever it is that we're seeking. Even when we're just planning where we're going to be for Thanksgiving, we investigate whether it will bring us the comfort that we're seeking or good company that we might feel we need. So first we think and then we act. However, there are countless, countless small actions every day, subtle actions, slight directional activities every day that do not receive this kind of focused attention. Many of these small actions are driven by habit. This is most likely why we visit certain shops or restaurants, we seek out or avoid certain types, different types of people, or read a particular newspaper each day. From our earliest years, we build up patterns of behavior, and these bring corresponding results. Just as it takes an apple seed, for example, to grow an apple tree, 
The results of our actions will and do correspond to the causes that we create. But really think about how often do you honestly review whether your habits and patterns bring the results that you seek? Do they still make sense? Are they just familiar patterns? Will they lead to increased happiness or even satisfaction? So our teachings explain that how we choose to act is not only important for our own welfare, but also for that of others. Through our actions, we have the choice to nurture friendships, families, community, and society, or to bring pain and disharmony. Every little thing we do sets in motion a chain of events. The deeper we probe into this, the stronger is the call to pay intense attention to how we think and subsequently behave because the consequences of what we do can be so complex and so far and long-reaching. Reason and experience show that certain actions help bring about a greater sense of well-being, while others just create mayhem and misery. Once this is recognized and accepted or acknowledged by us, we can't any longer blame the world or forces outside our control for our circumstances, but we take on an air of responsibility as we acknowledge our own role in how things are and take more responsibility for how we behave. Paying attention to the four aspects of how we act, kindness, honesty, generosity, and right speech will lay a solid foundation for contributing to the happiness of ourselves and others. The four aspects of how we act, kindness, honesty, generosity, and right speech. Then we have how we relate to others. How we relate to others. Is it not a simple fact, whether we like it or not, that we really can't get by on our own? Just take a look at the act of eating breakfast. Maybe we're half asleep or in a rush to get to work on time. It is so easy to forget the people behind the scenes who make our existence possible. Whether it's the farmer who grew the, the wheat for our bread, the engineer who brought the water for our tea, the van driver who supplies the, the way to work, our connections with others are endless. If we pursue the matter to its logical conclusions, we will find that we are linked to every being on the planet, past, present, and future. This is a fun meditation. This is a fun consideration to do how we are, in fact, linked to every being on the planet, in the past, in the present, and how we will continue to be interconnected, perhaps even interdependent, on every being on the planet in all our moments to come. So we, we overlook, we, we pay no attention. We don't even really care sometimes. We overlook, we ignore these infinite connections. And to do so, it's a major obstacle to our happiness. There's a deep-rooted inclination to see ourselves as separate individuals who have worked so hard to be self-sufficient and independent. Even our advertising slogans give the message that it's okay to be self-centered, to look after number one, and to prioritize our own needs and concerns at work, at school, with the family, on the TV, in the newspapers. We're encouraged to compete rather than to collaborate. The result is often isolation, loneliness, anxiety, and perhaps even depression. It doesn't take much effort to see that the happiest people we know are those who acknowledge their interdependence and who nurture warm and appreciative relationships with the people around them. On a day-to-day -day basis, this is probably the most immediate cause of happiness for any human being. 
Nobody likes to be criticized or disliked. The sour taste of disapproval can linger for days, weeks, even years. In contrast, someone whose genuine source of support and encouragement for the people around them is never short of friends. To be kind to others is a kindness to yourself. At the root of the strongest and most lasting relationships, this is not just Buddhism, this is also human psychology, at the root of the strongest and most lasting relationships is a sincere wish for the other person in the relationship, the other person with whom we are in contact, to be happy. Cultivating this thought, may the other be happy, sets in motion a chain of events in which we naturally learn to act with more warmth and kindness, and they in turn are more likely to respond positively towards us. Even when we get it wrong and act unskillfully, even when we don't intend to hurt, the cultivating of the act to try to help will end up soothing the relationship. So the four qualities of how we relate to others are respect, forgiveness, gratitude, and loyalty. Respect, forgiveness, gratitude, and loyalty. And again, we will go through each of these in summary after our musical break, which is coming up soon. But we have one more group before one more group of four guidelines for life, and these relate to how we find meaning. How we find meaning. Consider, again, change is all around us. Impermanence, change is a law of nature. As the world revolves, day turns to night, seasons come and go, food grows and decays, machines are invented and become obsolete, and new clothes that were once the height of fashion become faded and warm. Across the millennia, even mountains and continents are on the move. I was just in Nepal, as you know, and I mentioned the earthquakes that took place in 2015. I remember reading that the the top of Mount Everest, the summit of Mount Everest, increased, increased by, I believe it was four or five inches after the earthquake. Mount Everest, the highest point on earth, got higher. And through erosion, air erosion and water erosion, perhaps other earthquakes to come, it will begin to lower, it will begin to sink. And at some point in years and years to come, Mount Everest won't even exist anymore. Everything, everything is in constant flux. And we, as human beings, we get caught up in this constant process of change. The atoms that make up our body are in flux. We're born, we grow up, we reach adulthood, we mature, we decay, we get old, and then we die. In every moment, our thoughts and emotions are shifting, often way faster than we can even begin to realize. Everything that is produced and created has a life cycle that is subject to change and decay. Everything. Ignoring this basic truth traps us in illusion. It leads us to cling to the idea that things endure and remain stable, despite all the evidence to the contrary. We forget that a treasured cup will break, a loving relationship may falter, a flower will wilt and die, or that our family, friends, and pets will grow old. When we fail to appreciate this, our lack of understanding can cause incredible discomfort and pain in our lives. Even if we know deep down 
that things will change. And we do know deep down that things will change. We try to ignore the fact, because change is scary. What will the future hold? Will it be better or worse, easier or harder, more sad or more happy? Yet consider that a life without change would be unthinkable, devoid of opportunity and hope. We would be stuck just as we are without the opportunity to grow or develop. If we can make wise decisions about how to spend our time and energy, about what is meaningful in our lives, change is something to be welcomed and embraced. There is infinite potential in every moment, and it is up to us whether we choose to grasp it or not. So the teachings explain that our search for meaning will depend upon our ability and willingness to explore new and unfamiliar territory. In Buddhism, this is why it is often called a path. It's a challenge to venture deep into yourself, to explore your inner strength and longings and find out how to use them to create a happy and fulfilling life. The process may be tough and demanding and exhausting, but it's also thrilling, liberating, and profound. Who are you? What are you doing here? How can you make the best of the years you spend on this earth? We have role models. Relevant role models are people who went on this personal journey and who found meaning through abandoning a narrow and self-centered view of themselves in the world. Perhaps you're fortunate enough to have a role model in your life or to have had a role model in your life who you found to be inspiring. Role models demonstrate how developing aspirations, principles, service, and courage will help us to find happiness for ourselves and for others. So the four aspects of how to find meaning are aspiration, principles, service, and courage. So in summary, before we go into detail, we have four groupings of four aspects or four guidelines for life. How we think includes humility, patience, contentment, and delight. How we act includes kindness, honesty, generosity, and right speech. How we relate to others includes respect, forgiveness, gratitude, and loyalty. And how we find meaning in our lives relates to aspiration, principles, service, and courage. So we'll go into each of these 16, give you a short roundup, if you will, of the 16 guidelines for life very fundamental aspects of the Tibetan Buddhist path of activity, of action. And uh, we'll come back to these after we take our musical break. As promised earlier, I'm going to play a tune for you called Apocalyptic, as composed and performed by Bobby Vega and Chris Rosbach. It's an instrumental tune. It's got beauty. It's got bounce. It, you decide whether it's apocalyptic or not, or perhaps it's just enjoyable. I hope it is. So we'll do that now. I'll see you on the other side. Once again, this is The Elegant Mind with Mark Winwood on Valley 104.9, local FM community radio in the Lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State, broadcast on the internet at www.valley1049.org, and podcast as well. Again, thank you for listening. Enjoy the music, and we'll catch up on the other side.
Okay, welcome back to The Elegant Mind after that apocalyptic musical interlude brought to you by Bobby Vega, Chris Rosbach. Apocalyptic. I hope you enjoyed. So we're going to look at, at a roundup, as I said earlier, or a short roundup of the 16 guidelines for life broken into the four categories of how we think, how we act, how we relate to others, and how we find meaning in our lives I suggest if you if you find this you think this might be of interest to you get a notebook get a piece of paper get a pen you might want to take notes or even better if you would like me to email to you a document that has all this information that I'm going to cover included I'd be happy to do that I'll send it to you as a PDF form you can read it on any device print it out have it for yourself if you find the 16 guidelines of life of interest something that you might want to look into further and look for the relevance between these guidelines and the way you perceive is the best way for you to be living on this planet. So send an email to me at mwinwood, M-W-I-N-W-O-O-D, at gmail.com, mwinwood at gmail.com. Just request 16 guidelines. Say some nice words if you'd like, or some uh, some not so nice words if you'd like. Whatever whatever uh, mood you're in, shoot that to me, mwinwood at gmail.com. Just let me know you're looking for the 16 guidelines, and I will get a document off to you for you to read and contemplate, and then perhaps we'll have some ongoing conversation about it in the days to follow. Happy to do that. So, how we think. We have humility, patience, contentment, and delight in order. So what is humility? Humility is the attitude of experiencing the world and what it contains with a sense of wonder and awe. It's about seeing ourselves as a small part of a vast cosmos inhabited by people and creatures from whom we can learn. And there's the key. The humble mind is not the subservient mind. We have this thing here in the West that humility is a weakness. You know, it's some kind of subservient, unimportant. You know, if you're humble, you're not important or you're not aggressive. Or... No, 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 quite the opposite. The humble mind is the confident mind. The humble mind is the mind that knows and understands that everywhere it goes, with everyone it meets, every being who crosses its path, there is something to be learned that can be learned and perhaps needs to be learned from that individual. That is humility. That is humility. It is quiet strength. As I said, you know, in some cultures, in our culture, in some corners of our culture, it's considered quite normal and attractive, desirable to be loud and assertive about what we think and what we want. But there's something dignified. There's something, dare I say, elegant about people who are sincerely humble. Even if they're prominent and successful people, they have the wisdom and experience to understand that they have limitations and there are always things to learn. A person with humility can see beyond their own viewpoints, their own interests, which are changing all the time anyway. They acknowledge that we're all dependent on other people. We have unique, sometimes unexpected roles to play in each other's lives. To be humble shifts our perspective from me to others and is delighted to do so. So humility comes at the very beginning of the 16 guidelines because the humble mind is the starting point. 
It's the starting point. How can we even begin to grow and develop if we think we have nothing to learn? So humility, humility begins the, the checklist, how we think, how we think. And I share with you a quote, which I'll do periodically throughout, a quote from Galileo. Galileo, everybody knows Galileo, great Italian astronomer, who said, quote, I never met a man so ignorant that I couldn't learn something from him. It's Galileo. So humility. Then we have patience. Patience, following and adding to and enhancing humility. To practice patience is truly to taste the power of your mind. Life is full of uncomfortable experiences, minor niggles and irritations to major confrontations and setbacks. We all face them. And when they do happen, we have a choice about how to respond. We can either become agitated and upset, kind of lose our cool, start thinking unclearly, emotionally, reactively, or we can stay calm and relaxed. Patience is the ability to control our reactions and retain our state of mind, our peaceful, clear state of mind. When we're patient, we have flexibility. When we're patient, we have strength not to be a victim of circumstances. It's like kind of having a protective suit of armor patience. It doesn't make us passive or resigned. It doesn't take away the ability to respond appropriately to difficulties and harm. But on the contrary, patience makes it far more likely that we can respond in an appropriate way to what's occurring because we retain the ability to think clearly. Some people seem to be born patient. I wasn't. I don't know if you were. Some people seem to be born patient just as others seem to have a tendency to get angry. However, it's also possible to cultivate patience. We can cultivate patience. We can remind ourselves of the damage that is caused by uncontrolled anger. We can accept that an injury may not have been intended. We can remember that the situation will change. Patience is a learning curve that lays the foundation for a happy life. The Dalai Lama famously says, quote, Many people think that to be patient is a sign of weakness. I think that is a mistake. It is anger that is a sign of weakness. So says the Dalai Lama, 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, Tenzin Gyatso. Then we have contentment. Contentment, how to think contentment. Contentment is a, it's a state of mind that has nothing to do with money, objects, or other people. And it doesn't concern itself with how much we have or how little we have. Instead, contentment is about finding a point of stillness within ourselves, which allows us to be quietly happy, whatever our situation might be, and to be at peace with who we are. How do we do it? How do we experience contentment? It can be as easy or perhaps as radical as taking a breath in, decided to release everything that makes us feel anxious and dissatisfied as we breathe out. We all breathe. We can all do this. Try settling deeply and quietly in a traffic jam. Try settling deeply and quietly in the middle of an argument or when tears are close. Let the commotion of the world just come to rest. It is possible it is possible to taste the experience of surrender and release. When we're content, we are released from the restless desires that just drive us blindly forward and backward that prevent us from being open to the needs and gifts of others. Contentment frees us to direct our energy in fresh and more conscious ways. Let's see, how about a quote from Benjamin Franklin? Not a Buddhist. <laughs> 
Benjamin Franklin, content makes poor men rich, discontent makes rich men poor. Benjamin Franklin. And then the fourth of our ways to think is delight. And delight is delicious. Delicious delight. Delight is the delicious taste we get when something good happens. Worries fade away. Frustration evaporates. Anger disappears. When a baby is safely born or a friend passes an exam, when a problem is solved or a conflict is resolved, delight opens our heart. Delight can change our minds. It can change our lives. It is a tonic. It is an antidote. It is a nectar that relieves the pain of envy and shifts the blight of depression. It brings us closer to the people we love and eases the difficulties we have with those people who are further away from us. It makes such good sense to practice the art of rejoicing, delightful rejoicing. It's really kind of crazy that we overlook it. We so often overlook it. Why is bad news sometimes more compelling than good news? Why are we so tempted to dwell on what is going wrong rather than what is going right? One drags us down, the other lifts us up. We have a choice about what to feed our mind. We have a choice about what to feed our heart. If we can learn to dwell in positivity and accomplishments, we can quickly bring more happiness into the lives of ourselves and others. Jane Goodall, we all know Jane Goodall, says every individual matters. Every individual has a role to play. Every individual makes a difference. And there is delight in knowing and understanding that. So then we come to how to act. And included in how to act, we have kindness, honesty, generosity, and right speech. So this is all pretty obvious, I think. Don't you think? Kindness, honesty, generosity, and right speech. So kindness. Kindness says, I want you to be happy. It's as simple as that. To be kind means to be friendly, caring, generous, benevolent, considerate, respectful, fair, and affectionate. We all know, you know, in your heart when you've received or offered kindness because of the warm feeling that it brings. Is there anyone who really doesn't want to experience that? Kindness knows. Kindness needs to be delivered with wisdom, with skill. Because kindness knows with exquisite wisdom when it is appropriate to say or do something. And it's often found in the small details. A gentle touch on the cheek or a soft support of the elbow guiding someone across the road. Sustaining eye contact for just a moment longer. Making a telephone call. Remembering the little things that please someone. If we act in a kind way, it may seem that we are putting someone's happiness ahead of our own. But, and how dare we put someone else's happiness in front of mine. But really, in practice, it doesn't work that way. Because being kind invariably feels good. It lifts our own spirits. It nourishes us in ways that we don't always acknowledge. Everyone benefits everyone benefits. Just imagine a world in which everyone shows kindness to each other. It's kind of fairy tale. Is kindness something we can learn? And what can you do to become more kind? Lao Tzu said, kindness in words creates confidence. Kindness in thinking creates profoundness. Kindness in giving creates love. Lao Tzu. Then we have honesty. 
how to act with honesty. Honesty is an opportunity to move through the world gracefully without harming other people. To speak or act dishonestly is to put our own interests ahead of someone else's, to distort what they experience, to fit our needs, or to take their possessions for ourselves. This is why dishonesty causes such disappointment and pain. Honesty is a personal choice. It arises every time human beings are in contact with one another. Each individual has the opportunity to be straightforward and honest in their dealings with other people, regardless of their health, family situation, possessions, or resources. In doing so, they help to create a culture of honesty for everyone. Once again, we're going to imagine. Imagine a world where everyone plays fair, acts justly, and keeps their affairs simple and straightforward. Even the thought, it may make you smirk, but it may also make you soften and smile. It may take an enormous amount of courage and strength, inner strength, to bring this about. But why not start? Why not try? Why not consider? Honesty starts with each one of us. Honesty starts with each one of us. Mark Twain said, look, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> so if you're forgetful, if you have a problem with memory, just keep telling the truth. You won't have to remember anything because it's all right there up front. No stories. How we act with generosity. Yes, in our culture, in some ways, generosity seems a crazy countercultural way to behave. Instead of keeping our time, energy, or possessions for ourselves, we give them away. There's something very powerful, though, about choosing to do this. It is a fundamental shift away from the limited, narrow, greedy world of me and mine. Generosity is defined by the wish to benefit someone else. It is rarely the gift or the gesture that matters most, but the message that comes with it. Don't kid yourself. The heart knows this immediately and unmistakably. We taste the uneasiness when a gift has an ulterior motive and save our real admiration for the person who can give without seeking a return. Whether we want to learn how to open our hearts and hands more widely and to share more generously whatever time, energy, talents, and possessions we have, it is a critical decision about the direction that we want our lives to take, to be generous, to share ourselves. To share ourselves. You don't have to give money. You don't have to be generous with money if you don't have money. You don't have to be generous with material things. Just be generous with your attention, your caring, and your energy. That's all. Just share yourself without seeking anything in return. Without seeking anything in return. Winston Churchill, not a Buddhist, I don't believe, said, you make a living by what you get. You make a life by what you give. Winston Churchill. And then in How to Act, we have right speech. Words, words, words. Text messages, Twitters, and... <laughs> <laughs> emails and all that, Instagrams and all that stuff. Whether we love them or whether we hate them, it often feels like we're drowning in the noise they create, the distraction they create, not only in our own ears or on the page or on our phones, on our computers, but in our heads. Words have the power to uplift us and to knock us down, to liberate and or to entrap. They create friendships and make enemies. They can gain us great wealth and lose us everything we possess. 
in Buddhist thinking, right speech, correct, unharmful speech, right speech is a commitment to use words skillfully in a way that will bring peace and happiness to ourselves and the people around us. It's about using our speech to take away fear, to bring hope, to make people laugh and feel closer to one another. One of the ways that we share who we are is through right speech. Right speech. The Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, said, Teach this triple truth to all. A generous heart, kind speech, and a life of service and compassion are the things which renew humanity. So now we move on to how we relate to others. Respect, forgiveness, gratitude, and loyalty. So respect. Everyone wants it. Respect's a prerequisite for human beings to relate to each other. Respect acknowledges we have the same basic needs, physical, psychological, or spiritual, and that other people's experience and wisdom can be helpful to us. But there's yet still another dimension to respect the power to transform. From our earliest years, we learn and grow through admiring and copying, emulating other people. In traditional societies, this was a well-ordered process. Wisdom and life experiences were seen as a form of wealth to be passed down. The elder, the term the elder didn't just mean old. Why is there now a tendency to be disrespectful toward people who are older and have more life experiences than ourselves? It's crazy. All around us, there are people we can respect and learn from if we choose to do so. And if we have the necessary humility, respect is something that we have to give rather than to demand respect. Respect. Lao Tzu, once again, Lao Tzu said, When you are content to be simply yourself and don't compare or compete, everyone will respect you. Everyone will respect you. And Dostoevsky said, if you want to be respected by others, the great thing is to respect yourself. Only by that, only by self-respect, will you compel others to respect you. So if you are looking for people, if you're trying to compel others to respect you, the great Russian Dostoevsky, only by self-respect will you compel others to respect you. Then we have forgiveness, how to relate to others, forgiveness, and forgiveness simply is the capacity to reclaim our peace of mind when something has happened to disturb us. As we go through life, it's inevitable we're going to hurt one another. In fact, as our world becomes more complex, as it becomes more interconnected, opportunities for con conflict increase. We have the choice whether to respond to these hurts and conflicts with anger and bitterness or with forgiveness. Note, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. It does not mean that we gloss over the harm that has taken place or pretend it never happened. What forgiveness does is to allow us to let go of the destructive attitudes towards the past that imprison us and the person who harmed us in a cycle of recrimination and guilt. Forgiveness may seem insurmountable. It has vast consequences, but in essence, it is nothing more than a shift of mind. The motivation to forgive has to come from a genuine deep wish inside to relieve the pain and discomfort of ourselves and of others. It cannot be forced. Forgiveness cannot be forced. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, To forgive is not just to be altruistic. It is the best form of self-interest. Then we have in how to relate to others, gratitude. And gratitude simply celebrates our connection with other beings and our capacity to offer mutual support. 
It's a form of openness, generosity. It strengthens relationships. It heals tensions, resentments, and anger. Gratitude calls us to strip away unnecessary complexities, to be simple and natural with each other. It brings peace. It brings harmony. When we're able to offer gratitude sincerely to someone else, just watch. Just see what's going on when you offer gratitude to someone else. Notice how it brings a pleasant taste in the mouth, a warm feeling in the heart, a surge of energy, because appreciation and gratitude feel good. They feel good. Gratitude is grounded in the wisdom, grounded in the wisdom that accepts that we're neither independent or self-sufficient, just part of an extraordinary continuum of events and beings on this planet. Learning to appreciate every single thing that happens as a potential source of insight and growth is one of the key ingredients for a happy life. Marcel Proust, Proust, Proust said, let us be grateful to people who make us happy. They are the charming gardeners who make our souls blossom. And then how to relate to others is loyalty. And you know, when life is going well, it's easy to forget. Change happens in an instant. It's the nature of the universe. In an uncertain world, a sense of loyalty and mutual responsibility is often the glue that holds families and friendships together. It can be a lifeline. It can be a lifeline that helps us feel safe, supported, enable us to function well. It is logical to feel loyalty toward the people we feel close to, especially if we want them to be loyal to us. But consider, can that feeling of closeness go a little bit further? Is it possible to extend the same warmth and support to people outside the inner circle, our inner circle? What can be done to develop an attitude of loyalty and solidarity toward the wider community and ultimately toward the entire planet? What would the world be like if we could each extend a sense of loyalty in this way? And then we have the fourth category of the 16 guidelines to living, which is how we find meaning, aspiration, principles, service, and courage. So in order, aspiration. Aspiration is the profound longing for purpose and fulfillment, joy and happiness, which lies deep and sometimes buried in our hearts and in the heart of every living being. It is the voice inside that urges us to use our life well and to make the best of whatever gifts and passions we possess. The way we choose to respond to that voice will determine all the choices we make in our lives. Look, perhaps just listening to this broadcast is to inspire. Aspiration is the fuel of change. It feeds on our hope that life could be better or more meaningful and our willingness to do something differently to make this happen. It is a call to action. Everyone aspires to be happy. It's natural. It's a natural human quality to include others in this aspiration. We want our friends and family to be prosperous and content. We want homeless people to find shelter, hungry people to have food. We want the world to be at peace. The happiest and most contented people are usually those who have found a way to put their aspirations for self and others into practice and have thereby played an active part in creating a better world. Yet everything they did consisted of small choices and steps, many of which are possible for anyone. Then we have principles, how we find meaning through principles, our principles. If we were each given a blank sheet of paper, how many of us would be able to list the principles that guide our lives? Would you? Would I? I don't know. 
maybe, perhaps. Day-to-day living makes so many demands that sometimes it feels more than enough just to react as best as we can to whatever happens, hoping it will all turn out to be okay. Yet many of us have plenty of principles, even if we're not aware of them. What is it that angers you? What is it that gets the fire churning in your gut? Getting upset is often a sign that a principle that we hold strongly has been breached. It touches on something that says, no, no. We may be surprised by the passion and strength that is alive in us. Principles provide us with strength. They give us foundations from which we find the power and energy to make a stand about the things that matter to us, to keep our aspirations on track, like the spokes of a, of a bicycle wheel. They give stability, help us move forward in a purposeful way. What can we each do? What can you do to be true to your principles, use them skillfully to build a happy life? How do we find meaning? Through service. Service is the outer expression of our wishes to benefit others, to increase their happiness. At its best, it's an expression of caring, sharing, and delighting in each other. If it arises effortlessly and spontaneously, it is beautiful to watch. For most of us, learning how to serve and to be served is a lifetime's task. Every moment provides opportunity to make someone else's life a little bit easier or nicer. Every thought, word, and action that flows from us in a beneficial, wise way has the potential to create happiness. Are we willing, are you willing to find within yourself the sensitivity and intelligence, the clarity and conviction that this will take to cultivate? Let me tell you, the rewards are huge. As we discover and deepen our wish for other people to be happy, we also find the key to our own happiness. Nobody gets left out of the equation. Service. Vincent van Gogh exclaimed, How can I be useful? Of what service can I be? There is something inside me. What can it be? What can it be? And then our last of the four aspects of how we find meaning is courage. Courage is about strength. It's about stretch. It's about seeing, feeling, or realizing something more or different can be done, developing the determination to do it, and then carrying through despite all obstacles. We know in our bodies when we've been courageous, there's a glow of satisfaction and relief. Something has shifted and we've grown in size. Importantly, courage is not defined by what we do but what we overcome within ourselves. It comes in many forms. It's found in a steady approach to everyday difficulties as well as in the single spontaneous gesture. It involves acknowledging fears, but not being deterred from offering something that goes beyond our own immediate needs and comfort. Most courageous people have decided that the well-being of others is more important than their own and have allowed this decision to drive their actions and the way they live invariably they find their own happiness in the process so there you have the 16 guidelines for life little summary of each broken into the major classifications of how we think how we act how we relate to others and how we find meaning once again if you would like something to read that will explain this further i'd be happy to send that along to you please shoot an email to me mark winwood mwinwood at gmail.com and i will respond to that quickly in the meantime thank you so much for tuning in to this latest edition of the elegant mind it is a pleasure and an honor to share these teachings with you and we'll see you next time around thank you once again